On this episode of Business Interrupted. One of the biggest problems that I have right now is we simply don't share enough information about what's going on or the types of events or incidents that we've had to deal with as a community. And it means that most of the folks that are exposed to ransomware type events or any type of bad event are really through headlines. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada. When hearing about a successful cyber attack or some form of data breach, have you ever thought that could never happen to us? But what if it did? How would your organization maintain continuity? Business resilience depends on cybersecurity more than ever before. Jason Barr, Chief Information Security Officer at ADA, joins me to discuss. Jason has more than two decades of experience in the IT industry, with more than half focused on information security, making him the perfect guest for this topic. To start things off, here's Jason on what cyber resilience truly means. So as a general commentary on cyber resilience, it's really your your preparedness in my mind for being able to adapt or or being able to um, have to deal with the incidents or the issues or the events that are coming inbound towards you and being able to live through them (laughs) and and be able to recover from them, so to speak. So I think uh, it's a pretty broad discussion point in my mind when I look at it, but uh, I'd say that's probably where I would categorize it. I've used the term bend, not break when it comes to, you know, any type of threat. When we talk about the philosophy for a moment, you know, some people talk about cyber or information security. It's, it's not a question of if something bad happens, it's when. Do you subscribe to that philosophy? hundred uh, percent. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, if you haven't been hit yet, don't worry, it's coming. <laughs> Uh, you just have to wait for your turn, so to speak. But everyone is subject to these. And I think as a whole in the industry, I think we're moving more and more towards that where it will come at much higher pace, much more rapid succession in terms of being able to be hit by it. And you know, some of the areas that I'm, that I'm watching very closely around uh, the ransomware events and stuff, which I find fascinating, are the kind of triple or quadruple payments that are being requested, right? The ability to have someone who's hit you once and then come back three more times to get more money out of you because they still maintain that data or they maintain a footprint inside of your environment or there's just something that they keep getting you for. And it's just one of those areas that I think we're going to continue to get worse before we can really get better. And of course, with cyber resilience, you, you, you do everything you possibly can to prevent. Yeah, you obviously do what you can to learn and adapt, but you've got to be really good at, at responding to a successful attack. Maybe you can share for a moment, what are, what are some of the elements there or the capabilities when it comes to cyber response that, that stand out that are absolute, you know, just foundational or, you know, table stakes when it comes to having a really strong cyber response capability? I think number one for me is really having a proper incident response plan and testing. So when you look at incident response in general, it's chaos when incidents happen. Like when serious stuff happens, 
you really you really go into a, a state of chaos inside of the company where you know executives are freaking out, board members are freaking out, making sure what happened, what did we get hit with, how bad is it, what's the impact, what's the potential for revenue loss, what's the potential for litigation, all those areas. So really having kind of number one priority is having a really strong incident response playbook, understanding who to contact, when to contact, what systems that you're dealing with, understanding and being able to convey the message that's clear to the team and doesn't have all these hypotheses or your own take on it. Uh, it's very, very common that people just throw their own, oh yeah, it looks like this. And you know, they're, they're throwing all these uh, terms or, or information that's really extraneous to the situation. You really want to keep it to, this is what we see right now. This is what we understand. The second piece that I'd say is super critical for me is besides being trained in that incident response plan, it's understanding your environment. One of these areas that most companies ignore is having proper understanding of data flow, which is a huge factor when you're dealing with these types of events where someone's done something bad inside of your environment. You want to understand where it's come from, what data it potentially has access to, and where the data could have gone to. If you've done your job properly in setting up network diagrams, data flow diagrams, and data maps, you should have a pretty good idea of the areas of exposure and understand here's the areas we got to concentrate on. Here's where I want the team to spend their time looking through and understanding uh, and being able to deliver a verdict or, or some sort of status that makes sense for us. And then the third area, which I find tremendously difficult with most companies is the logging principle. So just the ability to actually see logs that are of value. When we try to track down what's gone wrong inside of an environment, oftentimes a developer has put in I don't know, I'm going to use like, something bad happened here. You should look, <laughs> right? Like that's kind of the message that comes out and, and that's really of no value to anyone. You really want to have a message that is clear and concise and plain English and that the team can understand how to investigate and then accordingly respond to and be able to deliver something that's of value to get us into a better state, a more healthy state in the company. I assume you can agree with me that this isn't just a technical response. It's a, this is a business issue. Oh God, no. And so there's absolutely a business issue here that's business, it's a business-led issue with a huge technology uh, response as well. For sure. One of the areas that the incident response playbook should have in it is PR related, which is something that a lot of companies miss, right? You talk about the business aspect of it. When you react to these events or these incidents or these breaches for that matter, you really want to understand how you're going to face your customer, how you're going to face the public, how you're going to face, hey, here's somebody from the New York Times calling you because they found out that you've been breached. What do you have to say? Right? You should have your executive team prepped and ready to understand these are the questions that you may get. These are the types of answers you want to give. These are the type of message you want to convey. And this is the attitude or the you know the emotional state that you want to convey to be able to have that empathy with the customer understand that this is seriously problematic for us in terms of a breach that may have happened and the customer is not in a good position right they're not a happy customer right now you, you want to have that empathy to understand to, to have that feeling with the customer that says like we understand it we want to fix things we want to make things right you know we're working with you and, and we want to continue to work with you to get it right one of the discoveries that organizations relatively new to building a cyber response capability, they, they start looking at that, that community of experts out there, the third parties that they could rely upon. Many of them are introduced by cyber insurance policies and, and vetted experts that can be brought to bear. Do you want to share some of your perspectives on some of those key third-party relationships that, that you'd suggest? Ahead of an incident or an event, 
I'd say you should have a PR firm that you work with, that you're comfortable with, that has experience dealing with these types of events that you might have to deal with. That's an important piece. And then once you've kind of crossed the threshold and you're into a breach, really you have to make a determination of you know what the impact of this is going to be to the business. And generally speaking, my first phone call is generally the insurance company. And the reason I say that is they will usually dictate who you can or can't use based on their own requirements and, and their own kind of network that they work with. They want to make sure that they're using someone that's reputable, et cetera. And part of that may impact your policy. So in other words, if you go and engage someone else, the insurance company may say, well, inside of your policy, it specifically states you had to call us first. We would have approved this individual, but you didn't. So you're on your own at this point which is obviously the worst situation you can be in, right? When you had a policy in place and you made the mistake. So one of the things that I always say to people when we go through any type of exercise of incidences or any type of just general risk around a company is understand what your policy covers and what you can or can't do. The policy is, is there for your backup. It's there to protect you. And even if you call it and it's a false false alarm, that's okay, right? They're not going to ding you for it. It's better to be in a position where you've made the call understand that there's a potential for something to go bad. We want to make sure that you're aware and then, yeah, we can stand down or, hey, this is bad. We need help. Get some people in here to help us. They have a vested interest, obviously, to limit the exposure and the losses. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing for the business and that you're protecting it in the right ways. Incident response in general is an extraordinarily complex scenario, especially when it comes to litigation and, you know, what happens afterwards. It's the fallout the that could take years potentially to work through. You want to make sure you do the right things initially versus having to do the cleanup of the big mess afterwards. You're mopping it up for years afterwards. For sure. And one of the key third parties, you know, as an extension of insurance is usually expert outside counsel to, to help navigate. And, you know, there's a huge body of expertise out there today. And with them comes a number of firms that they may have experienced working with, and you can kind of build upon their teamwork. And you mentioned PR firms, forensics, others that help stop the attack, do the, the investigation, the eradication, so on and so forth. When it comes to testing, any thoughts or recommendations there? I know that when I talk to organizations, it's that crawl, walk, run philosophy. It's start simple, build some muscle memory identify some big issues that you can close over time, but get better and better in integrating in with kind of the specialized recovery after a cyber attack as necessary. But what's your perspective on that? I subscribe to the same type of model that you mentioned here. You know, you got you to gotta crawl to learn to walk, to learn to run, et cetera. You know, you, you start with something and move it forward. Um, I think oftentimes companies are caught trying to boil the ocean, uh, you know, put in a massive playbook and make it all work, et cetera. I like to see a minimum of annual tabletop exercises for the team. At the very least, they understand that muscle memory that you mentioned, trying to get the perspective of here's what things will look like and here's what could happen in these scenarios. When I create these tabletop exercises, I tend to use ones that are very realistic for the company, like that we would actually go through. So if you're in, you know, use the example of a manufacturing sector, hey, our entire manufacturing line went down because it's ransomed. We have no productivity. We can't move anything out of the warehouse, right? We can't move anything through the manufacturing process. What do we do? And these are real life scenarios that companies will go through. And, and I've had to deal with in the past where, you know, a company will get ransomed and their entire facility is down. They have nothing. So not only are you losing all of the money with respect to where you are right now and producing that product, you're backlogging all of your current orders. You're backlogging your ability to actually deliver those. And you now have that both 
the figuring out how to fix it and then compensating for all the losses that you incurred when you go forward from there. So yeah, you try to build that out as much as possible. You know, any type of incident that you encounter, any type of uh, item that kind of runs the same model or, or runs in, in kind of a similar category, you can use that as your tabletop as well, right? You want to get the team together. You don't want to just use it in the last possible resort. You, you want to be able to have that as an ongoing basis where you can pull the team together and say, hey, we had an incident. Here's what happened. Here's what we know. Here's what we're researching, etc." So they can get familiar with it. Yeah. And I think this goes back to one of the first comments you made about, you know, one of those capabilities you absolutely have to have is some form of data flow, process flow, to understand where some of the, these attacks might be and what are the downstream implications from a business perspective as well. You know, you mentioned payments before, and I want to go back to that for a moment. And there's obviously a lot of debate, and, there, and it, the debate has changed quite a bit, I think, over the years as, do you pay or do you not pay? And oftentimes it gets very theoretical pre-attack, but when you're in the throes of it, depending on the situation and the circumstances, you may be reopening that debate. What's your perspective on this? Yeah, everybody talks a big game before it actually happens to them is I think the best way to put it, right? Everybody, oh, we'll never pay that, right? But the reality is, you know, when you've been ransomed, you're probably going to bow at some point if you just can't get the business back. Otherwise, you risk losing the business. And there's a couple things to keep in mind with this. How do you go about doing these payments, right? You just, you can't do it yourself usually. One of the things that ransom players have been doing very, very well of late is looking around your network before they actually execute on the ransom to find relevant documents that are valuable to them. So, for example, your own insurance policy. They will look around and find your insurance policy to know exactly what they can ask for when they're ready to ransom you. It's a great way for them to get the inside scoop, understand, hey, you've got, I don't know, 5 million income, making up numbers here, whatever. Got 5 million in coverage. Great. We can ask for 5 million. We know you'll pay up. Or we can ask for 7 million and maybe you'll have to, you know, top up the last two. We'll look around for your financial information. We'll look around to find out, you know, how healthy is the company's books? What do you have in the bank, et cetera? These are great ways for the, the, uh, bad actors to go through and figure out, know ahead of time, this is where we're going to go towards and this is what we're going to do with it. And here's how we're going to play the, the whole scenario. Additionally, I think, as a general comment, like whenever you deal with these events, you just can't go out and buy a million dollars in crypto. It's just not going to work, right? It's not how the system works. You actually have to have someone who acts as a purchaser for you to do this. What I'll say is dealing with any type of negotiation, it's not something that I would recommend that you do on your own. You should be bringing in someone to help you with this. And those individuals will generally have individuals that they work with that could go out and actually purchase that level of cryptocurrency for you and be able to deliver that to the individual through their networks, etc. It is a complex process. It's not something you want to jump into on your own. It's also not something that general counsel would work with on a daily basis, right? You know, dealing with these types of events, this is not something that I would have GC involved in. I would have a specialist who comes in to actually work through this and be able to get something that will get us healthy again, so to speak. And for the most part, not always, but for the most part, the um, you know within the inner CISO community having these conversations, there's a ton of support from the ransomware operators. They actually want to get you back running if you just pay them, uh, and so you know you, you want to do things like asking for proof of life, right? Sending them a few files that are not important files that they decrypt for you and send you back, type of thing. Making sure that, that works, etc. So th there's a lot of complexity to this, and, and I want to make sure that people are aware you shouldn't be doing this on your own. Period. 
Like there's just, there's just no reason to, you're asking for trouble. One of the biggest problems that I have right now is we simply don't share enough information about what's going on or the types of events or incidents that we've had to deal with as a community. And it means that most of the folks that are exposed to ransomware type events or any type of bad event are really through headlines. It's not the stuff that you see that's kind of the down and dirty and, and, oh yeah, I had to deal with this bad actor who was doing these bad things to me and, you know, here's what happened and here's what transpired. Because most of the time, like, you're afraid of litigation. You're afraid of your customers freaking out. You're afraid of the headlines associated with you. And it's kind of a stigma that comes with this whole ransom, bad actor, whatever you want to call it, any cyber attack, there's a stigma associated with it. And I think that's something that we have to get rid of as a community and be able to help build the overall knowledge and understanding of the rest of the people around us to help get better at this stuff. Otherwise, we're just kind of grabbing in the dark, so to speak. We're just making uh, whatever we can, whatever we think we know. Cyber is obviously a top of mind issue for so many organizations. When it comes to cyber and the supply chain, there's obviously a lot of worries there. What are your thoughts when it comes to dealing with key third parties, your suppliers, your business partners, when it comes to cyber, what's the playbook there in a pre-attack situation? Historically, most companies have done a very poor job of vendor due diligence. You kind of just accept, hey, we're doing business with these folks. Here's a, a little questionnaire. Let's make sure we're good to go, etc." If you can understand what data you're dealing with, because ultimately it's all about the data, right? It's about what's the risk for the data that you're dealing with. If you can understand what data you're dealing with and what you're going to be transmitting back and forth with these individuals, which by the way, you have to based on GDPR and, you know, CCPA, all these areas. But if you can understand that data, you can then give a, a kind of a quantifiable or at the very least qualitative, hopefully qual uh, quantitative as well, level of risk that's associated with this relationship that you have. And then accordingly, you should be classifying that vendor relationship at, you know, high, medium, low type of thing. I'm, I'm a big fan of keeping it simple. Like KISS principle is, is I live by it. And I think oftentimes a lot of the people that I speak to get tied up in so many different levels and classifications and all these. It's really, really simple, right? Like you look at it and say, does this, does this company have access to my customer's data? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. That's a high risk. We have a problem here, right? If something goes wrong, I'm going to lose customer data. We're going to get sued and we're going to have a problem here. The second level for me is really, does this company, is it maybe critical to our business? Does it have employee data, right? Is there sensitive data that we may be sending them that's our own trade secret, stuff like that? Maybe they're a medium, maybe they're a high, depending on how you look at it. And then kind of the bottom level being a low, you know, eh, they have some access to some internal data, but it's not the end of the world. You know, we'll be a little bit bruised up if it happens, but we're not going to lose a limb. We're going to be okay from it. And so I've looked at a lot of the different vendors. I think there's a few good solutions that are out there. I think the challenge is the negotiation part of it comes becomes very difficult in terms of what are you able to get coverage for? So when you look at those security addendums or those, you know, uh, data processing agreements, whatever you want to call them, whatever you want to classify them as, you want to have a good understanding of where your limitations are and where your risks are associated with that and what coverage you really need. And it really will vary quite dramatically by the risk classification that you do, as well as the vendor that you're dealing with, like larger vendors, you know, they're just going to tell you to get lost when you try and, you know, institute some major controls over them. It's just not going to happen. At the same time, you know, you have to make that decision, what the risk is to the business of having that type of exposure. You know, if you're dealing with a major vendor and that vendor has no security whatsoever, which is very common, you know, it's not something that doesn't happen. Then as a business, you have to determine, is that the right 
place to be? Is there another vendor? Is there another option? Or are we just willing to accept that risk and go forward with it and swallow the pill, so to speak, so that we need to make the business happen? Yeah, and then goes into the uh, the when, not if, and make sure you're appropriately ready for when something does occur because you're not the only one exposed, but the third party may be the source of that situation. But I do agree with what you said. It's a heck of a lot more than just the simple questionnaire at the beginning of the relationship. So Jason, last question I want to ask you about is from an executive perspective, you know, obviously as a chief information security officer, you're in the room with the rest of the leadership team. You're oftentimes dealing with even boards of directors. What's the board of directors asking these days when it comes to cyber resilience related topics? The number one part is for me is the transparency. I think historically there hasn't been a lot of interest at the board level with respect to you know, what does cybersecurity mean to us? What's what's the big deal? We just got to make the business. We got to make sales. And I think that sentiment is changing quite dramatically actually over the past you know, couple of years probably where we're looking at it from a very different angle to say, hey, this is a significant rest of the business and we have to actually take care of it. There's a lot of good questions that are coming down from the executive leadership team and the board level, knowing and understanding exactly the position that we're in, having the insights into the position that we're in, which is an area that I think most companies struggle with. Like, do you actually know the security posture that you're in right now? Do you actually understand all the vulnerabilities that you have? Do you actually understand the posture of your systems and your environments, how your Azure configuration is done, how your AWS configuration is done, whatever, it doesn't matter, any cloud, any data center, it doesn't make a difference. Just having that type of insight and transparency is a massive step forward to be able to provide, even if you're not going into, and generally speaking, I do like a really simple green, yellow, red type of like, it's it's like Sesame Street almost. Uh, you kind of just do, here's, you know, status, here's green, yellow, red um, for each of the different areas that we have in front of us. And here's the areas that we need to tackle and here's why. And then there's a, a large appendix which says, here's all the stuff if you want to really dig in and understand why we are where we are or why we were in this good state or in this bad state, you're welcome to dig in. But generally it's it's a really high level overview. And then as they, you know, anybody asks questions, et cetera, you're digging in and just giving the feedback on this is why we are where we are, et cetera. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me. What's the best way for people to connect with you if they uh, want to reach out and ask you any questions? Yeah, it's usually LinkedIn. So I'm on there. Um, if you're logged in, just look up. Uh, I'm, I'm under Jason B. Barr. You can find me and uh, I'm always happy to connect with folks and, and learn more. It's great to be able to interface with with other individuals who are interested in the space. And it's a great forum for me to kind of post my thoughts and areas that I find of interest. To me, cyber resilience starts with an if, not when mentality. That doesn't mean the organization shouldn't invest in preventative measures, but it better be prepared with a timely, robust response to a successful cyber attack. This capability involves trained people, engagement with expert third parties, which may involve outside counsel, public relations firms, forensics experts, and yes, even contingent methods to negotiate and make ransom payments. For more information, be sure to download our Cyber Response Builder with a link noted in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenario's episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.